What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Josh Marshall podcast. We had some big news break late last night, uh, 10 or 11. I can't remember exactly. And, and, and it broke in kind of a funny way or, or in a in a bit of a different way than we are accustomed to uh, recently. And that was why, at least, at least for me, it was sort of like a slow motion breaking news. Um, you know, uh, the U.S. government, the, the DOJ, and um, the former president, the ex-president, have been have been going back and forth with these court filings about the search of his Florida. I, you know, it's funny. I think he's pulled something over on us. The fact that we call this place Mar-a-Lago. You know, does does your house have a name? I mean, some people do. But it's it's sort of like granting him this like conceit to to make it like this is like you know Balmoral Castle or something like that like Mar-a-Lago. It's just his his Florida state, right? His Florida Country Club, whatever. Anyway, digression. Uh, so back and forth about the search of this uh, compound, big house, as 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 we regular people call it. And um, you know, it started with this magistrate judge down in Miami. Right. That that there's already been a lot of like far right conspiracy theories about. And then uh, when the Trump folks finally kind of got their act together and decided to sort of make some arguments, they went venue shopping. They went like a bunch of counties north and found this uh, woman who is a recent Trump appointee and went went to her. And, and even 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 she in her initial you know, not ruling, but formal response said something to the effect of why are you coming to me? There's a judge handling this. Why, why, you know, why this? Well, it's, you know, it's venue shopping. And I, I must say, Trump over the years, you know, they do a lot of venue shopping and I'm kind of surprised they get away with it as often as they do. You know, generally speaking, you have a you have a judge who's handling a matter, and sometimes you can ask a judge to recuse themselves, or maybe you make a an argument like, you know, the, the venue should be here, not there, or something like that. But generally speaking, if you just kind of like go somewhere completely different, and again, I don't remember exactly what, uh, you know, what courthouse this woman is, is, is based at, but it's not, it's not like two miles away. It, it's like it's significantly further north. Generally speaking, you do that, and the answer is just no. 
or or like the government comes in and says what's this about you can't you can't do this um I don't know if I guess maybe you know as often the case people are just much more solicitous of a former president. You know they don't want to they want to handle a, a former president with kid gloves. In any case, um, so uh, the Trump folks have been making these arguments. The judge, again, recent Trump appointee or you know late Trump appointee, made an initial uh, ruling, kind of tentative ruling. Sort of like I'm planning on 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 uh, finding in Trump's favor, not yet, but that's where I'm going here. Okay, um, you know, finding in his favor is maybe doing some special master or something like that. You, you know, it's not like it's in his favor; it's a delay, but it's not like he'll necessarily get anything out of it. In any case, she did this before the government had even put their arguments on the table, which caught a lot of people's uh, got a lot of people to sort of perk up and be surprised, right? I mean, this is, it, it's kind of a long shot what he's asking for in any case, or maybe a stretch. And you, you, you know, you'd wait to hear from both sides. In any case, she did not wait to hear from both sides. And last night, the government came back with their response. And it was a pretty detailed, and I think one would have to say, based on the reaction so far, you know, a fairly devastating to the president response. Just what they found, where they found it, uh, the whole timeline of, you know, kind of how we got to this point. And so I don't know, you know, I don't know if the if the judge is going to is going to sort of rethink where she was going with this or not. I mean, again, it's important to uh, recognize that what Trump's attorneys are asking for here is basically just a delaying tactic. What they're asking for is a special master, i.e. an outside third party, not their person, not the judge, you know, someone who kind of comes from the outside to look at the documents and decide uh, whether they're, they're kind of juggling these two different things. Attorney cr- client privilege potential documents, which everybody agrees is a is a is a real thing in this case. The government has already done that to gone through set aside things they think are covered by attorney-client privilege or executive privilege, which the president just doesn't have, or <laughs> I should say the former president does not have. And that's why he doesn't have it because he's not president. You know, we talk a lot about, oh, an ex-president, a former president, you know, former presidents, sometimes especially Trump, so call themselves president. But that's just all weird courtesy shit. There's no ex-president, no former president. There's no, there's no other than, other than getting Secret Service protection and a pension. You're just another guy. Um, as we've discussed on the site and some here, there are some. Uh, I'm not sure I'd call them rights. There are some rights a former president has to make arguments about what he would like to keep secret, executive privilege. Just you know, it's too soon. Whatever. But in all cases, the current president makes the decisions. Former president doesn't have Jack. So in any case, uh, all we're really talking about here is whether you get some other person to look at the stuff. And the Trump people want that because it's, you know, they're, they're always about um, delay. So the big thing, or at least, you know, the thing that has gotten the press attention is this photo. I assume you've seen the photo. It's got that, you know, it's it's a bunch of top secret and classified documents in those. You know, they come in like jackets, 
right? So, you know, there's something in there and they come in a certain kind of, you know, kind of high powered manila folder with color coding and all this kind of stuff. And they're sort of arrayed out on the floor, you know, with that, with that carpet that is like, you know, you're, you're, you're at, I don't know, you're at an EST conference at the hotel near the local airport or something like that. And that's, that's the carpet. So anyway, that is happening. And we're going to uh, dig into the reaction and what this means and stuff like that. And we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about the, the surprising, uh, New interest in reproductive rights among many hardcore pro-life Republicans who still want to be elected. Uh, I was writing some about the, you know this Blake Masters Masters guy who is this kind of uh, you know this guy that that Peter Thiel like hatched in some sort of lab in like a in like a birthing husk or something right and he he got the he got the nomination out in, out in um, Arizona. He's very right wing, you know, even like you know, kind of like Nazi adjacent stuff. But in any case, on on the abortion front, he's been pretty clear through the whole campaign. He wants what what the uh, anti-abortion folks call a personhood amendment or law uh, uh, law or constitutional amendment, Uh, basically saying a fetus is a person. Ergo, you can't kill it. You can't do anything. It's a person just like you or me. So it is a it is an absolute pro-life law. No abortions ever for any justification. Since Dobbs, he's been backpedaling a bit. Um, I mean, more than a bit. Um, and this has already gotten a lot of attention. He scrubbed parts of his website. But yesterday, his campaign manager goes on and she says, no, 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 no. This is all fake news. He's still totally pro-life, totally down the line. In fact, he wants a national law that bans uh, quote unquote, partial birth abortion or late term abortion. Like, wait, what? Like, you know, y- y- you can, those are kind of, you know, uh, Republican, you know, kind of scare phrases for abortions in, in different contexts. But if you take that on its face, that's basically just kind of Roe as it existed six months ago. There, there's, there's, Roe doesn't allow you, or Roe does not prohibit states from banning abortion in like the eighth month of pregnancy. You know, there's all sorts of details we get into. But basically, <laughs> he's 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 jettisoned everything. And 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 this is like a hardcore absolute downline person. It just gives you a sense of how much they're kind of they're kind of running scared. Anyway, uh I talked about it uh talked about it all already. But we're gonna talk about all that stuff with a lot more uh substance from from my co host uh Kate Riga. Uh before we get into that, let me remind you that uh Josh Marshall Podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. It's hot like too hot to put on real clothes and shoes to go out to get iced coffee. But that doesn't mean you have to suffer without something delicious and cold to sip on. Get a Grady's cold brew bean bag kit delivered to your door and enjoy smooth, silky iced coffee without ever leaving the house. Each kit makes 36 glasses of iced coffee, which means you'll be ready to weather even the worst heat waves. And with a price tag of just a buck a cup, you'll have the money left over to splurge on a kiddie pool. Ready to feel the chill with every sip? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's uh, Grady's coldbrew.com with promo code TPM. So uh, Kate Riga, co-host Kate Riga, what are, what, what do you think? What, what, what have you, what have you absorbed so far about uh, the events of, of last night, so to speak? So, you know, my perspective on this is 
I am not really our person who like spearheads this as mostly Josh Kabinsky. So I have probably more, more approximates to a, you know, like a layman's kind of view of this. So which is what struck me the most, I think, was probably the how explicit the DOJ was in the filing re Trump's cronies attempts to not cooperate to the point of maliciousness, you know, because I do think something that's been swirling around this, like everything with the Trump administration is that the incompetence is always so omnipresent that it can sometimes muddy the waters of what is malicious and what is just kind of people bumbling around who don't know what they're doing. And it becomes a defense almost. Exactly. yeah. Yeah. And in this case, there were you know, there was all this stuff from like Trump's lawyers, this Christina Bob person being like, we contributed, we let them rifle through, we did all all that we could. But then in the filings, it's pretty explicit. You know, the government says they were so unhelpful to the point that it raises real questions about obstructing the process. So the government clearly feels that that kind of what maybe at first blush seemed like bumbling incompetence was so egregious as to cross the line into purposeful kind of boxing out of the investigators of this process. And that seems important. It seems important that they were willing to say it in a filing that they knew would be, you know, chewed up by every outlet in the world. Um, And also just in terms, you know, and I'm no expert of what statutes, what espionage, what mishandling of documents stuff is involved here. But it just seems kind of important to me that they made that distinction, that it was important enough for them to kind of lay that out with such clarity. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think as as is often the case or or what the goal is, the government speaks to its filings and the Trump world has made all sorts of arguments over the last few weeks, many of which turn on, you know, hey, it's a big, Mar-a-Lago is a big place. There's a lot of papers. You know, you're saying we were hiding stuff. We looked, we didn't see anything. Now you're making it, you know, you're making a federal case of it, all this kind of stuff. And I think with that, with that, I mean, there's a lot of things they were obviously trying to accomplish with that picture. But one of them I think pretty clearly is don't tell us you looked and didn't see any classified stuff because this is really, really obvious. Um, you know, and again, we don't know civilians generally don't know, you know, what are we even talking about? Are you saying like right here, I have a file cabinet with like, you know, bills, uh, stuff from my son's schools, everything under the sun, all the paperwork that we all deal with that we want to keep and stuff like that. And like now you're saying like, OK, I got to go through it and what's classified and what's not. I mean, how do how do I, you know, how do I know? And I think they're they're speaking in a legal context, but also in a public context, kind of like, don't tell us you didn't see this. This is really obvious what there's lots and lots of stuff here clearly marked. And so a good deal of this is, you know, they're, they're speaking both in a legal context and to a legal audience. They're speaking to, I mean, in the most direct sense, speaking to the judge, but they're also clearly speaking to a public audience and basically and, and saying, you know, what you had here was really bad. It's really obvious what you had. There's no kind of like this wasn't disorganization or something like that. And in those details they get into, and I think this is where... This is what it comes down to. 
you were hiding this stuff from us and we caught you. And one of the things I was noticing is people were sort of, um, you know, absorbing this stuff last night. One of the points the government made is sort of, it was to say, based in so many words, don't tell us there's some executive privilege thing. You never mentioned that. And, and, and that's done. You know, there, there is a, there is a process that these things are adjudicated through. You have to say, okay, that thing, I'm not giving it to you because I think I have this right to have it. I think it's executive privilege. I think it's attorney-client privilege, whatever. And you didn't do it. And now the time's up. So that's done. Like we're not even getting into that because the, the clock ran out. And so what, and what you see there, and I think, uh, again, DOJ saying a few different things here. What you see here is that Trump went out of his way not to engage in the formal process that these things are decided through. And, and by not engaging, by delaying and ignoring, the clock ran out on those things. But the point was, is that he wasn't trying to make any arguments about some rights he had or some privileges he had. He was just hiding what he had. So you can kind of see that. I mean, that, that's the bottom line here. He took a bunch of stuff and he was trying to hide it. And, and, and you definitely cannot do that. There is, in, this, in the same way that um, when there is, uh, you know, when there's an election, you can go to court and make arguments and, you know, exhaust those processes. You can't just say you won or try to, or, or, or try to like create new votes or stuff like that. And that's kind of, that's kind of what he was, you know, the equivalent of what he was doing here. Something that's not clear to me is whether Trump held on to these documents due to their contents, you know, that he kind of wanted to keep these documents for a particular reason or that it's just his knee-jerk reaction to disregard rules or to believe that he's above them, to think that, you know, things like letters and subpoenas and summons are just for kind of lesser mortals, that he has had such a lifetime of breaking the law to various degrees and never having to face any kind of real punishment for it. That's just something that continues to kind of elude me, you know, whether these documents were important to him in particular and whether they have some kind of more sinister reason that he kept them in his possession or if it's just this is what he does. You know, he does what he wants. He doesn't care if it's illegal or dangerous or exposing potential sources and, and national security things. You know, it's just it's totally unclear to me. Yeah, I at some level, obviously, we, we, we just don't know. Um, and we are, I mean, we may never know just given how these things, how these things operate. But I would say this, the government has said that, oh, you had lots and lots of classified documents. And, and that's true by the standard of you're not supposed to have any. So you had a lot. But the president of the United States during a full term in office sees tons of classified material. I mean, it is almost... I don't want to say it's everything they see, but, you know, all the time, because the president has to make the highest level decisions. So he, he either has to be, you know, read into a discussion of these things or see the things or whatever. OK, so I don't think it's that these he was just kind of keeping everything that kind of doesn't make sense. 
right? I think he kept these things for for particular reasons. Now, it may be that, you know, the sort of the more innocent, innocent explanation might be that these are the ones that kind of stuck in his craw on the day of, right? When he was getting briefed and he just kind of thought they were cool and, you know, stuck them in a box. And when it came time to, to leave, they, they went with him. One thing that came out, though, a couple days ago, um, Rolling Stone, uh, which is having kind of a new life now or a second life under new management after, you know, kind of the Wenner family sold it and all that kind of stuff. And they've got uh, an old friend of mine, Noah Shackman, who's now uh, like executive editor. So they're kind of, you know, breaking a lot of news or breaking more news than they were for a while. They had this piece and um, basically that President Trump has been telling people apparently for a while that he has dirt or knows stuff about the French president's sex life. Okay. Now, if you remember, the initial, the original inventory, you know, very general, but the the inventory of what was taken, one of the things that was listed was some sort of dossier about the French president. Like, okay. That, I mean, there, were, there was not a lot in that inventory. It was basically just, you know, classified stuff class there wasn't like very much detail at all that was one of the few things that was a reference that is detail that us normal people would have any any idea what you're talking about okay now one reader of ours kind of a a friend of mine over over many years now is a french expat living in the united states so very versed on french politics and what this person has kept reminding me of is that back in 2017 when macron first uh, ran and was elected president. The French far far right had all sorts of stuff it was putting out about his supposed you know supposed dirt about his sex life, and you know the French far right is very in hoc to Russia. You know, I mean, literally has been funded. You know, the um, the National Front got loans from from Russian state banks and all this kind of stuff. So there's this backstory, and. You start to put all this together like, okay, this has been a thing in, you know, kind of uh, on the French far right. And there's a lot of ties between their far right and our far right, uh, a lot of ideological commonalities. And this thing shows up some sort of, you know, classified document about the French president is, 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 I think this is kind of the story. You know, people talk about, oh, you know, he's he he took a lot of nuclear designs and he's going to sell them to Saudi Arabia or he's going to do this or he's going to do that. That's it's it's really hard to sell stuff like that, especially if like everybody knows you're Trump. Right. If they know you took the stuff and suddenly like, wow, our signals intercept from Saudi Arabia says they just bought something for Trump and they're stoked. I mean, you know, you can't it's not that easy to do. But what makes a lot more sense is especially given Trump's history is information is power, especially damaging information. You know, there's all that stuff back in the kind of early Trump Stormy Daniels era when we found out that the National Enquirer and all and it's sort of safe, you know, it's it's lock safe of all the kind of the dirt it had come in, you know, it had it had purchased over the years was sort of like an, a, a, an arsenal for Trump. And stuff like that, you don't have to use it. In, in some ways, you don't even want to use it. Because once you used it, it's, it's lost its, 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 its power. Um, but in stuff like this, if Trump's just holding a lot of stuff that could be, that either 
could be helpful to some people to kind of let them know about or potentially damaging if you got on the wrong side of Trump. You don't have to assume selling stuff or, you know, kind of anti-Trump fanfic kind of stuff. It makes perfect sense given who he is. It's like, hey, it's mine. I don't want to give it to you because I've got the juice as long as I hold that stuff. So I want to I keep it. That's my sense of what's happening here. And I suspect we're going to think we're going to find out more about the French president stuff because, you know, he had a kind of a hot and cold thing with Macron, which ended up pretty cold by the end. So, yeah. And then kind of the last piece of this is just, you know, and maybe I'm just like too cynical by this point, but it just still feels so unlikely to me that the thing that brings Trump down is improper retention of documents. You know, I don't know. It almost feels like Al Capone going down for tax evasion. Like clearly it, they've done it before, you know, but yeah, it, it just, I don't know. I guess it just so pales in comparison to what I see as the most damaging parts of his presidency, whether or not that damage is, you know, makes for a tight prosecutorial case that it just almost feels like, really, this is the thing. Well, it's, you know, it's one of those things where, and this is, this is one of the great themes of the Trump era, that we don't really have, it has not seemed necessary to create laws to cover most of the things that Trump was doing. Mm-hmm. And for reasons that are, that have a lot of merit for the sort of the normal conduct of government, our system is very leery of, you know, the president just has a lot of power. And generally speaking, a uh, president has a lot of power and Congress has a lot of power and the courts have a lot of power. And we kind of let them, you know, we kind of figure it'll be okay, you know, kind of hashing all, you know, having those three branches are, you know, kind of uh, hash it out. And so a lot of the, a lot of the things that we think are so bad, there aren't really laws that are designed for that. There are laws that you can say, say, okay, it matches that. There's a lot of, you know, uh, in recent years, they've done a lot of this, you know, kind of defrauding the government, uh, defrauding the government or the people of honest services. Kind of like you said you were going to work for the government, but you did some bad stuff, so you're defraud. And so, you know, you obviously in theory, you could cover a lot under that, uh, under that rubric. But this is a case where there are a lot of laws that are just really clear. And they're especially clear when you are not president. When you when you're when you're sitting president, you know, you've you can say, hey, I, I first of all, I'm the I'm in charge of classification. So I'll just kind of say it's declassified and it's declassified, which kind of is true, not completely, but kind of. Um, and, you know, even if I wasn't doing something exactly right, I'm I'm trying to run the government here. You know, don't kind of put a stick in my spokes and, and make it hard for me. I'm, I'm, I'm running the free world here and I need access to all the information. And, and, uh, a lot of people in courts and congresses will say, okay, yeah, I mean, you, you had to look at stuff. You need to have these, whatever. You don't have any of that when you're not president. You don't have any right to do any of this stuff. You don't have any need to look at it, anything. Um, so, and, and, you know, one thing that, one thing that came up and it was clear in how they were stating it is, even if Trump did declassify stuff, 
which is obviously BS. He was dealing with warrants that said, we need to see everything marked as classified. And that was really key, marked as classified. We can debate later whether it's really classified because you did some kind of secret magical declassification, but it's definitely marked as classified. So that subpoena, you had to turn this over and you didn't. So, so there's lots of stuff like that. It's just there's a lot of crisp legal requirements and prohibitions that he was just stampeding through. And, and, and as you say, uh, Kate, you know, one of the things they're, you know, they're kind of relying on their own incompetence to say, hey, you know, we're back and forth. We're looking for the documents. Don't, don't, you know, don't jerk our chain about like we missed something. And that's the other thing I think it was, you know, they're clearly trying to do in these, in this, in this filing is to say, like, we asked you over and over again, you lied to us. You said you couldn't find stuff that is sitting right there. So you obviously you knew it was there. And, and this is the part that I, I'm still kind of curious about is they're basically saying you move stuff so that when we came, we wouldn't see it. So this isn't, this isn't confusion. You're hiding stuff and you don't have any right to hide stuff. And in fact, it's illegal. Right. Okay, so now let's move on to the great Republican backpedaling, which I think has really reached a new clip after the resounding loss in Kansas for an amendment that would have stripped the Constitution of uh, the court's interpreted protections of abortion access there. And I think as you say, Blake Masters is probably the most egregious example of this we have yet, both because just the ballsiness of scrubbing his website of a fetal personhood stance and then pretending like he is at all a reasonable person on abortion is, you know, pretty wild. That's like the equivalent of saying, you know, Every American baby should be given a gun upon its birth and then being like, no, 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 no. On its I'm conception. Re- yeah. yeah, exactly. And then being like, no, I'm for reasonable gun restrictions. I mean, that's quite, quite a leap to make. Um, and I'm, I'm sure reflects, as we've seen, Arizona in particular is one where the polling has been dismal for the Republicans, like double digits dismal, people pulling money out dismal, you know, projectors changing the race from toss up to favors the Democrat dismal. Yeah, I, well, that that's also too what I didn't get about that thing yesterday. And this is again, his his the woman who is variously identified as his campaign manager, top advisor, you know, same difference, um, going on Twitter and saying very specifically, national law banning partial birth or late term abortion. It would make sense. Okay, say you scrub the, you know, pretend you can sort of disappear the the fetal personhood thing. It would make sense then to say like, oh, you know, we all agree that abortion is a very bad thing and we want to make as few abortions as possible. And the Dobbs decision puts the power back where it should be and blah, 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 blah. But when you actually kind of state specifically what your new position is, which again, is, is... is kind of just like row plus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it, it's 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 kind of where things. It's where you could almost call it like a row law, right? <laughs> in a, in a, in, a, in a way, that just makes him seem absurd. Like, mm-hmm. are you really saying that that's not a change in position? You know, absolute prohibition of, on abortion in every case, and now kind of like no, you know, no uh, abortions in the third month of pregnancy. I like it's weird. That was like. 
that's just sloppy and stupid from a just a kind of a narrowly political sense. Why would you do that? Why would you be so specific? Yeah, it does seem almost kind of crafted to take advantage of the fact that most people who aren't in the kind of like virulent anti-abortion camp, like don't really know the specifics of abortion. And even a lot of people who label themselves anti-abortion, like, you know, it's the kind of thing where I've heard a relative say before, you know, I'm okay with abortion, but uh, I I don't like the late term stuff, you know, that that kind of, I don't want it to go too far. And it's kind of like, okay, well, by any definition, lucky for you. Right, exactly. (laughs) That puts you in the camp supporting abortion access. But I don't think that she ever would put herself in that camp. There is like a really, I think the messaging has been so successful from the anti-abortion camp that it has done a good job in getting like pesky facts out of the calculation. And just kind of if you're someone who the idea of abortion like makes you a little bit squeamish, that's enough for I think a lot of people to say, well, then I'm probably in this camp, you know, the quote unquote pro-life camp. Yeah. And that's, that's why, you know, kind of partial birth abortion Mm -hmm. became such a thing because it was a way to, you know, a lot of politicians could sort of go into a political context and say, hey, I'm not saying we're going to close down the clinics, but surely we can agree that, you know, you you, you can't have, you know, you can't have an abortion in, you know, at at eight and a half months. And a lot of people are going to say, yeah, okay, that's a bit much. That is a bit, I can't, I can't, I can't tolerate that. When in fact, as, as again, the 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 choice people have been saying for years that never happens except for cases where the you know the the, the there's no brainstem and st- or you know kind of mm-hmm. th- that's exactly. just a misnomer but it's a way for it's a way for republicans electorally to to say oh we're we're pushing the pro life agenda here and the pro life agenda is actually the more popular one because look how this is polling and it's funny because in that in that twitter exchange last night this this woman, the campaign manager, was reacting to some hardcore pro-life person basically saying, like, you know, fuck Blake Masters. You know, he was with us before, you know, during the primary. And now he's just abandoned us, which is absolutely right. I mean, I wouldn't trust he's abandoned them. Think right. he gets elected. He'll be back where he's. But I mean, he has, you know, and and and. uh it's it's striking because I mean, it, it it's it's an about face so total it's it's like comical. Yeah, and another good example we've had of this is Doug Mastriano, who is running for uh, governor in Pennsylvania, and who's like a a pretty open Christian nationalist, you know, and he has before made comments about abortion, like saying things that, you know, it's not the baby's fault if it's a product of rape or incest and it's not the baby's fault if it might hurt the mother. I mean, like very, very kind of absolute abortion stance, which makes sense given that his entire campaign is shot through with this like very intense kind of Christian sentiment. And now he has pulled a huge about face and is now just saying, you know, well, the people of Pennsylvania will decide what abortion looks like in this state, you know, just being like, no, that's not my circus, not my monkeys, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm Senator. We don't run Pennsylvania. So yep. I don't know. What, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Right. <laughs> no, so it, there's it, it, him 
Well, just another big example is Adam Laxalt, uh, who is running for Senate in Nevada. He has supported bans. As state attorney general, he supported restricting access to birth control, kind of, you know, the next domino in this. And now he's doing the old chestnut of saying, well, it's settled law in Nevada. You know, that's kind of more the tack that I think Ron Johnson has been taking as well. The He's been saying from the beginning, you know, well, abortion will always be accessible. So don't have to worry about it. You know, it's, it, it's this like squishy place they've been trying to occupy where they're saying like, nah, it's not that big a deal, you know, on one side of their face while on their other, they're being like, woohoo, biggest anti-abortion victory in decades. Like this, you'll just get more of this from me, you know? Right, right. No, it's, it was and, and in, in Ron Johnson's case, he's basically saying like, hey, just go to Illinois. Exactly. It's not far. Like, <laughs> exactly. what's, the, what's the problem? Can't you get in the car? You know, <laughs> so... And, and it's it's funny. I mean, this is why, and I suspect they will, that, you know, anybody running against these people needs to say, OK, can you commit to never voting for a national ban since you want to be a senator? No, it's you know, it's funny. I actually I I, I misspoke a moment ago, just caught myself. The Mastriano, he's the governor. He's not right. running for Senate. I mean, the governor is the governor. So he he's he at least the senators can kind of say like. I'll be in the Senate. I, I just not my, you know, not under my purview, not part of my portfolio, what happens here in the state. But I mean, it, yeah, I mean, that that's... I thought you meant a state senator, so you would have... No, yeah, oh, right, right. That he, that he, yeah, that he, that, he, that he currently is. But um, yeah, I mean, it is this big effort just to kind of say like, oh yeah, no big deal. Mm-hmm. We're going to be having abortions right and left, no problem. Right, and I mean... That just in no way should kind of affect the Democratic attacks on these stances because they were saying this stuff like months ago, you know, in the primary. You don't like even weeks have ago to, in some cases. Exactly. You just there's no kind of like, well, we had to dig back to 2002 to find it's just it's clearly it's not real. It's this like squishy attempt to when they're asked by local reporters about this to find some kind of non-offensive stance that won't result in a Kansas like blowout, which I think was just kind of intensified when um, um, what's his name? Pat Ryan. Yeah. Pat Ryan in New York right. won yeah. that special yeah. uh, house seat. And he put abortion like very kind of top of ticket for what he was running on. And that is considered, you know, kind of a Biden. I think it's Biden plus 1.5, like a, a bellwether, you know, your classic right. kind of swingy seat that he won somewhat unexpectedly after running hard on abortion. So I think that did just solidify the sense that, oh boy, you know, I guess people are mad about this, which is, I've been thinking about this for days. Like, it's just so weird that they didn't see this coming or that they didn't have the next chapter of the playbook written out because we knew that this was going to happen at some point or another ever since Barrett got onto the bench, right? This wasn't a surprise to anyone. And so it is kind of funny to me that after years of pretty meticulous planning by this contingent of the Republican Party, we've reached this point and they are just flailing to figure out where to stand. They seem kind of stunned at the emotional response and backlash. And all of this stuff, I think, to some degree, was pretty predictable. I agree. And I, and I, think, I think there's two things. One is that it didn't come, it, it, it was not well-timed for mm-hmm. them in electoral terms. I mean, ideally you would have this, you know, come out. I mean, obviously there aren't 
things happen during the summer. That's how the Supreme Court works. But ideally, you have this a year and a half or more from a midterm election. So it's all kind of settled in and everybody's, you know, I'm not sure that would really happen, but at least you could imagine that that would happen. It would, you know, the kind of the heat would settle down a bit. The other is, I think, that uh, everybody's in their own cocoon, right? And um, in some ways, you know, there's been this forever argument between the political factions in the United States is it really a pro-life or pro-choice country? And the way that the anti-abortion forces made the argument for themselves. I mean, one thing, abortion restriction did used to be more popular. It is a lot less popular now than it was even seven or eight years ago. Um, And it's a separate question whether that is actually a change or just that it's become more immediate that it may that it you know that it may happen but the way they've convinced themselves is kind of what we described a moment ago of basically saying oh you know no one supports partial birth abortion no one supports late term abortion blah 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 and those are true as far as it goes but when you frame it when 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 you actually ask should abortion almost always be illegal that hasn't been popular for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I think they've kind of fooled themselves at, at some level. But you see, even, even setting aside, you know, hardcore pro-life people, if you look at the kind of uh, electoral commentary, you know, ba- basically before Kansas, right, or kind of starting in May when the, when the, you know, the draft was was leaked and stuff. A lot of people saying, yeah, people, some people are going to be upset, but look at the polls. It's never the top issue. Um, you know, it's the activists who are already voting Democrats who are really bummed out. So even, even um, you know, kind of political analysts who, you know, one imagines and probably accurately don't have kind of strong views on this themselves, they didn't they convinced themselves this wouldn't happen because again, oh, you know, economy is always top issue. People talk about it. They don't turn up at the, you know, they don't turn up at the polls. The people who really care about it are the antis, all that kind of stuff. So you kind of see how they convince themselves because even people who didn't, so to speak, have a lot of skin in the game, mm-hmm. you know, who, who weren't looking at it from an ideological perspective were supposedly sort of neutrals missed it. And there's, you know, a lot of reasons why that might be the case, but but that was the case. You know, people who are listened to rightly or wrongly. I do think there's also just a piece of this that's they just can't help themselves. Like, it's not that hard to see a world where even while these state legislatures pass draconian bans, they also pass the Helping Mothers and Children Act and, you know, do obviously they're not going to get behind like free pre-K, but some kind of band-aid-y type stuff so that they can say, well, look, we want abortion to become vanishingly rare. And to do that, we realize that means more people having children who are not equipped to have them. So we are going to do X to make that easier. And you do have like a smattering of particularly younger often female lawmakers in the Republican Party trying to make that argument. But it is by no means a dominant strain at all. And it usually doesn't come to fruition in any kind of way. And I just think there's a degree of like, 
It's who they are. They can't help it. Most of them are genuinely really thrilled with this outcome. And that just trumps strategy sometimes. You know, I remember on a totally unconnected thing, thinking this while I was on the hill for the Katanji Brown Jackson hearings, just wondering like, she's gonna get through. She's kind of by normal standards an inoffensive choice. You could, as a Republican, maybe win back some credibility on like women and race and bipartisanship by tossing her a vote that doesn't matter, you know? And basically none of them did. And instead they kind of pulled out the whole pedophile thing and just went really hard at that. And it's just a case of, I think, it's who they are. They can't help it. They think that throwing this red meat is more important than coming across with a modicum of, you know, kind of central appeal, crossover appeal. That stuff is just lost cachet, I think. Well, one one I I think, you know, one thing that comes out about this is that Different people. I mean, the the best example of what you're describing in my mind is the way that I mean, okay, it's sort of obvious that in a lot of red states they're gonna they're gonna pretty quickly just move and 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 ban abortion. Maybe they'll add some sort of like uh, very you know light health of the mother, you know, first eight weeks rape and incest. Maybe maybe they'll kind of do a little a little stuff like that. But basically, they're just gonna ban abortion. But the thing that jumps out at me is you have these cases of like, you know, this woman miscarried and they opened an investigation to see if she was, you know, looking up um, the morning after pill on Mm -hmm. Facebook and we pulled her Facebook records or, you know, uh, this this woman and her mother, they went out of state to get an abortion and, you know, they're. The pro-life folks used to be a lot more strategic about, at least in their rhetoric, approach approaching it as the woman is also the victim. Mm-hmm. It, she was taken in by the abortion merchants and convinced to get an abortion. They just know logically you're going to lose people really quick if if you're 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 throwing the woman in jail, even though by their own logic, why wouldn't you? You know that it, if it if it really is murder, why why wouldn't you do that? But but again, they, they've 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 generally been more strategic. But I think the point is is that, or one of the point. I mean, part of the point is they're just this is as you said, this is who they are. But the key is it's not it's not the head of the you know Republican Senate Campaign Committee who's making these calls. It's not even some of the top elected officials that are making these calls. It's the local DA in a kind of a rural county in a red state. And that person doesn't give a fuck, right? I mean, they're there. I mean, they don't care in them on their own, but also, I mean, they, they have their, their constituency doesn't care. And this is just they're playing to their sort of right wing base. So, you know, the 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 uh, the incentives are a little problematic for them. But that's the part that really jumps out at me, because those kind of things, a lot of people can at least convince themselves that, yeah, abortions uh, against the law now in a lot of the country. But eh, that doesn't affect me directly. I'm a guy. I, I'm a woman who's no longer childbearing age. Uh, I. 
you know, the, the biggest one, I'm in a blue state, who cares, right? I mean, I, I don't think many people actually think that. But again, that it's not affecting me really directly. But people see this stuff about like, you know, a mother trying to get her teen daughter, you know, a kind of uh, morning after pill. And suddenly the local DA is like, you know, kind of hauling them before a grand jury and searching, you know, kind of getting their internet records and stuff. People see that and are like, what the fuck? Like, what is going, you know, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So let's wrap up with a quick corner on what's going on in New Hampshire, which it's easy to forget, I think, with the background of kind of exciting Senate races happening in, you know, Pennsylvania and Arizona and Georgia. But there's also a, well, theoretically competitive race happening in New Hampshire. This is Maggie Hassan, who was first elected in 2016. She won by like just over a thousand votes then and has always been considered one of the most vulnerable Democratic incumbents. This race kind of garnered a lot of attention earlier in the primary cycle when Mitch McConnell flatly failed to recruit Chris Sununu, the governor, to run against her, who all the Republicans kind of thought if he runs, he'll probably win. He's super popular, comes from kind of a political dynasty in the state, et cetera, et cetera. He opted out. Since then, we've kind of had just B and C level candidates in the Republican Party, which is also, you know, that happens when in a state like New Hampshire, you're just not going to have a super deep bench. It's pretty small. There's not that many people. And so the emergent front runner has been this guy, Don Balduke, who is a retired brigadier general in the army. He ran in 2020 against Gene Shaheen, uh, didn't get the Trump endorsement, didn't win the primary. He came back. He's been basically running for this seat for like months and months more than anyone else was because the rest of the Republican field was kind of frozen in place until they were seeing what Sununu was going to do. He's been running for ages. The next leader, you know, the second place guy who is the establishment favorite at this point is the president of the state Senate who by all accounts kind of has the charisma of a sea slug, but is a much more New Hampshire Republican, right? Like he's conservative, but he's not nuts. And this guy, Don Balduke, is nuts. I mean, at his most, one of his most recent debate appearances, he said that he wants to repeal the 17th Amendment, which allows for the direct election of senators. Prior to that, it was decided by the state legislatures, which, I mean, convenient for him. The state legislature in New Hampshire is entirely Republican, but it was just what a stance to take as you're kind of introducing yourself to the voters for the first time people are really paying attention. And he's also just kind of a a conspiracy theory guy he hangs out with Michael Flynn, you know, he's when he when he r- tried to run in 2020, was mm-hmm. he running as the same kind of candidate? You yeah, said he didn't get. OK, so he didn't get well, Trump's endorsement, but he was the same guy wanted basically. It badly. Yeah, okay. And it's funny because this time that has been the big question mark, you know, because this primary is in two weeks. Um, it's the last competitive one of the cycle. And even though he is leading the polling and, and by all accounts kind of doubling this guy, Chuck Morse, lots of people are undecided and lots of people don't know who they are. So the feeling is a Trump endorsement could actually 
matter a lot, even in a state that is not, you know, in Trump's thrall the way that others are. And so he has been just kind of salivating for it. And it's just so sad because he got this like one crumb of affirmation from Trump when he went on TV and yelled about General Milley back when he was in the news. And Trump gave him one paltry sentence via his leadership pack, you know, great presentation from the general kind of thing. And he campaigned on it for ages, this one sentence. So, you know, it's funny because, again, big potential flip for Republicans. And that matters when we're talking about a, you know, one, two seat margin. And they're poised to nominate this just wing nut who in a state like New Hampshire, which, you know, I don't think anyone would say it's blue in the way of, you know, California or anything, but or the rest of New England. Right, exactly. I mean, successful Republican candidates there, though, do have to kind of you got to get some independence, you maybe have to get some conservative Democrats, you just have to be, you know, just a, a more old school kind of flinty Republican to win there. And instead, they're, you know, they've got got a pale imitation of Michael Flynn about to win the nomination. There was funny, there was one guy who was one term who, who, his name escapes me now. I would no, Bob Smith, I think he was either one term or two terms, um, maybe late 90s into the first decade of the 21st. I can't remember exactly. Um, But in any case, he's the last one who was kind of like that, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of in that in that mold. Um, and And it is a funny thing, like, you know, they tend to elect more libertarian ish Mm-hmm. Republicans that kind of, you know, there's still that sort of sort of a, a strain of that New England kind of uh, kind of thing. But the other thing, too, is is the, the big thing you need is to be named Sununu. <laughs> right. right. I mean, they've had I'm trying to think the current governor's brother was senator. The current governor's father was also governor. And I think his brother was also governor. So, you know, getting the. If they had gotten and and I you know they all uh, you know kind of blurred together for me. I think this one's Chris Sununu. That's the current guy, mm-hmm. the current governor, Chris Sununu. Yeah. So if they would have had, if they would have gotten him, they would have been in a pretty strong position to at least make it very competitive, right? And yeah, they didn't. So, but again, that's the thing is 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 it's a small state and and the, and, and the Sununu family kind of owns that owns that. Uh, party but it's it's a good example that that I think most people think now I mean she was one of the top vulnerable people and I think most people are assuming now that it's not even going to be particularly competitive yeah I mean last I checked a couple of days ago the kind of 538 amalgamation of polls and and all that data that they do had you know as the prospective matchup being her against this guy she was favored you know like 78 out of 100 times or something but it it really is just another data point in what we've been talking about for a long time that if republicans don't take the senate this cycle the biggest culprit is going to be candidate quality, you know, as Mitch McConnell has yeah. now said outright. But here's just another case where very winnable seat. Maggie Hassan is not that liked in New Hampshire, but you go ahead and pick this, you know, message board guy. <laughs> right. Then you right. toss a winnable race. It's funny because we do ha- at this point, we do have we, we do have 
two contending issues. One is definitely candidate quality, but also just the terrain is different. Yep. You know, some of these candidates are so bad that I think they were going to lose even if we were still in the, you know, kind of April, May mm-hmm. campaign terrain just because they're really, really weak candidates. And now, you, and, and you know, and now you have uh, both. I mean, obviously, you know, they're not uh, – sadly, I think uh, Georgia – still is going to be a really competitive race. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's bizarre because Herschel Walker, I mean, I keep seeing like things from him. I mean, he almost... I'm so surprised by it, honestly. Th- th- that he's doing as well as he is? Or, yeah. yeah. Because well, I feel like every headline about him is, is you know, it's Dr. Oz level nuts. Well, and nuts in the sense he says things that are just literally incoherent. Like, yeah. like and, and people talk about, you know, football and and uh you know concussions and and whatever uh it's hard it's hard to say i mean there's been a few polls in the last week or two um that have made it seem more competitive than it than it has i think there was even one that showed him up by a couple Mm -hmm. points you know different polls different house effects it's hard to you know but it's it's a pretty republican state and and it is it it is it is striking that in Arizona, also a pretty Republican state, but in different ways, um, that race seems much more in hand, like, you know, like like not terribly close. But we'll see, you know. Yeah. We will see. Okay, so let's wrap up yep. with a question from Stuart, who says, with several data points, Kansas, et cetera, indicating that many red state Americans favor the right to choose, is there any chance that even if the House goes to the GOP, a few Republican representatives might join the Democrats and vote to codify Roe? So uh, we were just discussing this off air. I mean, the, the real thing here is not that there wouldn't maybe be a few Republicans, you know, maybe like young women in in blue states, but that are in a red part of it that would vote for it. But, you know, this is a hypothetical speaker, Kevin McCarthy, we're talking about. He wouldn't bring he wouldn't bring a bill to a vote. Yeah, that's that's always the thing that you got to keep in mind. The vote's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. A. A, B, and C. The vote will not happen. Uh, there's a whole thing of, there's a system in the House for discharge petitions where you basically kind of force it, but that is almost impossible. And in some ways, it's just, it, it's, it's just the same uh, question, right? Are you going to, so it, it's it's not going to happen. And the other point Kay was making before we went on air is that even if it did happen, the question is probably assuming the existence of people who are just not there or not right. enough of them. Um, you, you, you certainly in in states like um, in states like California, you may have a few Republican representatives who are not maybe not pro-choice, but not exactly anti-abortion, but pretty vaguely, and there are maybe. I don't know. I, I'm sure you could you could count them all on one hand. And again, it, it's I, the answer is no. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just you can kind of look at Murkowski and Collins for guidance, right? People who are nominally still, you know, pro-choice Republicans. But there was just never really any actual hope that they would go for the Women's Health Protection Act. And to be fair, you know, I know that Democrats were kind of marketing it as just restoring Roe's protections, it did go further and it did do more to thwart the kinds of restrictions that red states have liked to use to cut down on access. But 
it was they were never going to support that. And even they were kind of like, well, we'd support something, you know, narrower and we're going to get to work. And you know, that has never materialized because it's just the Republican Party has moved to the right on this issue. And it's similar. I mean, look at the Democratic Party, right? You've got Bob Casey as being kind of the last vestige of the anti-abortion Democrat. And he's not really that anymore either. This is just an issue where all the old crossover people have been kind of sorted out. There just yep. aren't really any left. I mean, I think with with Casey, I think Casey is someone who his opposition to abortion to the extent it exists is ancestral more than anything. And so I think he has genuinely just changed his position for whatever, you know, for you can you can sort of plug in your assumptions about why about why that might be. Um, but with you know, Murkowski and Collins, it's one of these things where people are professional politicians. They're just not going to, they're not going to cross their party like that. They're just not. It's, you know, and they make, they're going to come up with different ways to justify it and explain it. Well, your bill is a little too, a little too lenient, or it's not, bipartisan, all these different kind of things. But at the end of the day, they're just not going to be there saying, sorry, Mitch, now we've got a row law. Sorry to tell you, it's just, mm-hmm. you're just not going to, you're not going to get there. It's just not going to happen. And even more so, even more so in the house, which is all about partisan discipline. Exactly. And I mean, just, just to end there, that is a big part of winning the majority of one of the chambers is you get to preemptively thwart legislation that would pass that is in your power, you know, and we've seen kind of both, especially McConnell uh, in the kind of waning days of Trump did this all the time, you know, just kind of wouldn't schedule things, even if they could potentially garner bipartisan support. So, you know, I just I think it's it can't be said enough that leadership of a chamber comes with a lot of perks. And one of those is scheduling, not scheduling a vote on a bill, even if it would pass, because you think like, well, that's not good for my party. That's not good for most of my members. What do I care about? You know, the smattering of red reps we have from California. And and the, the other, the other dimension of that, and this is what McConnell was so good at, that you have a lot of votes that if it happened, Republican senators would really be on the spot. Mm-hmm. They don't want to vote against it, right? And and what what holding the chamber means is you don't put your own people on the spot. You put the other guys on the spot. So yeah, you know it's it's that is why it is not going to not going to happen. It it is all having a row law is a hundred percent about getting two additional Democratic senators and holding the house. Yep, hundred percent. Only way it's going to happen. And um, even though uh, there's, they're really not making progress on making this pledge, I'm pretty certain it would happen because the pressure to the, they would not be able to stand the, the pressure. And, and, and uh, the president has committed them, even if they're not committing themselves. He's committed. Right. Them. He says that all they need is two more Senate seats and holding the House. So anyway, uh, let me remind you, Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Uh, it's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And I think that is that is it. All right. See you next all week. Right. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. 
Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. 